Blog Talk Radio. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Born to Talk Radio Show. I'm your host, Marsha Witeka. Conversations plus connections equals community. Those are my three C's. The heart of my show is what's your story? It's my belief we all have stories. Some are similar, others are uniquely different. Storytelling brings the passions of my guests to life through our conversations. So be prepared to be entertained, informed, and inspired. Welcome to today's show. Happy Monday, everybody. Can you believe it? We've Our clocks on our, our cell phones and our computers and our microwaves have told us that times are different, and we're all trying to adjust to this time change. But moving forward is what we do. And I'm really excited about my show today with my guest, Paul Mitchell. And, Paul, I just want to welcome you to the show. Thanks for having me, Marsha. I really appreciate it. It should be a good day. It's, it's going to be a great day. And I think it's, it's interesting for, well, it's interesting for me. So people always wonder, you know, how do you, how do you get your guests on your show? You've been doing this for a long time. Mm-hmm. Well, oftentimes they're total strangers or other times they come through the YMCA where you and I met many, many, many years ago because mm-hmm. I worked there. You were a member there. Your son was a member there. Yep. And yep. I was the membership director, so I knew my <laughs> members, and that includes you, Paul. And that yep. was a long time ago. I've been retired yes, yes. for a long time. So um, yep. I'm just delighted to have you join me. It was really fun. I, I was telling somebody, well, how did, how did you get Paul on the show? And it was like, well, <laughs> I, was in, I was in Bonds, and I was mm-hmm. shopping, and there was Paul, and he was shopping, and you had your homeboys industry T-shirt on, and I started mm-hmm. asking questions, and the next thing I knew, we were making plans to meet at Starbucks and have a conversation, and voila, here you are. So I'm, That's right. I'm That's right. delighted. It's it's great. And, I'm and happy to be here. Oh, it's terrific, Paul. And I thought we could start the show off with your with your story because when I say to people, "What's your story?" I really mean that. And you do have a story. And I would really like to hear about what it was like growing up and what your what your childhood was like. So, could you please share some of the information about your personal life with our get with our listeners? Sure. Thank you, Marsha. I will. And, you know, it's funny when we, when we did see each other and when we talked about your show and and everything, I think what came to my mind and kind of landed in my heart is kind of how the heck did I get here? How did I, how did I get to this point? And you talk about it, the why and to play basketball up there, I used to coach up there, all of the things that, that happened. um, I just, you know, I just wonder how I got there, got, got to where I'm at here, (laughs) especially in California. So, um, but my background is a little unique. I, I grew up in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and I was born in 1958. I actually turned 60 this month, so um, it's uh, oh, a, a bit of an anniversary for me. Thank you. And uh, um, mm-hmm. it, I grew up in a in a home that was a biracial home. My my dad was black and my mom was white. And not that that was any any great difference. Uh, it was it was a little different back in 1960s Minneapolis, but still. Um, that happens pretty commonly these days, but 
Um, mm-hmm. I really didn't know my dad. Um, he was much older than my mom. My dad was born in 1895. My mom was born in 1925. So they had a 30-year wow. gap between the two of them. Yeah, and wow. by the time I came, yeah, 30-year gap. And, and it was interesting that when I was born, so I have two older brothers. and I had excuse me, I have an older brother and an older sister, and I have a younger sister. So my older brother and sister were 10 and 12 when I was born. So I was quite the surprise. Mm. Um, I wasn't, yeah. I wasn't planned. I wasn't meant to be. And then I have a younger sister who's two years younger than me. And we're both very light skin where my brother, older mm-hmm. brother and sister are dark skin. And everyone attributed that to my dad's age. They said it was his genes weren't as strong. So I don't know. I don't know <laughs> if there's any credibility to that, but that was kind of the ongoing joke that we all talked about. But mm. By the time I came along and got in, in, in gotten a picture, my dad and my mom had pretty much separated. I don't ever remember living with my dad. My my older brother and sister had a relationship with him. He was around a lot more with them. But uh, by the time I came along, he wasn't there. So really, I grew up in a house with six people. It was my mom, my, sis, my brother Ward, my sister Joanne, um, my younger sister Debbie, and my nephew Philip. Now, Philip was like my younger brother. He was born when my sister was 16 and he was, he and I were actually mm. closer in age than I was with than my older brother and sister. So um, we all grew up in this house, uh, basically just, just the six of us. And it was, a, it was an interesting lifestyle. Um, it, it wasn't so much the fact that we were, we were, um, we were biracial, but in essence, we were black. We were black. We lived in a black community. We were brought up in a black culture my mom had pretty much separated herself from her, her white roots. You know, she still had communications with her mom and sister, but for the most part, most of her friends she had separated with. Um, I remember mm. her telling me when I was a kid saying, don't you ever bring a white woman into this house. Um, so she had wow. told us so many, yeah, she had told us so many times that um, she did not want us associating with white people. Um, hmm. And it was really, yeah, it was kind of confusing growing up. And, yeah. um, but when I, yeah, I mean, yeah, you can imagine. And, but when I look back at my mom and her life and what, what, it, what, it, what she went through is she had a father who was a really bad alcoholic. Um, she literally had mm-hmm. to feed him al- alcohol to keep him alive. She was engaged to be married to two guys who were fighter pilots in the war, and both of them died in action um, before mm-hmm. they could actually get married. So she was engaged found out he passed away. Then she got engaged to another man. Same thing happened. And I, and I think she just kind of threw up her hands and said, okay, I'm just going to marry this older black guy and, and just not worry about what anybody thinks and go in this direction. And I think it really changed her quite a bit. And when I was born, my mom actually had a couple of years after I was born, my mom had a nervous breakdown. And I think mm-hmm. all of it really affected her that way. And I think it just changed her. I think she was, she was somewhat of a person before that, but then when all of that happened, it just changed her. Um, and I think her lifestyle changed, which meant all of our lifestyles changed. Uh, sure. I grew up in a house. I mean, I grew up in a house where there was a lot of um, challenging things going on. Um, my family was taught that, okay, it's okay to have a job, but you need to have some kind of side hustle going on. Um, whether it's mm-hmm. selling drugs whether it's stealing clothes, um, whether it's doing something that was going to earn extra money, that's really what it was all about was money. 
And my mm-hmm. mom, I think, had gotten so desperate because of her upbringing and because of the fact that she just didn't have the resources. She just became, you know, got, money became her God. Money became her idol. And whatever it took to get to that was what she taught us and what kind of what, what, what would carry the day. Um, her challenge, her biggest challenge was just trying to make ends meet and take care of us and feed us. And, and she was very stressed out about that. But she continued to do things that caused a lot of problems around that. So she would go out and she would actually steal. And my mom, you know, would get caught stealing and the judge would let her go because she'd have, she'd have the kids and um, say, I'll give you one more chance. She'd be caught again and he'd say, I'll give you one more chance. Well, one time he didn't give her one more chance. And I remember visiting my mom when I was young in prison because um, oh, she ended wow. up doing things, you know, to, 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 to have that happen. And, you know, when I look at my mom, I look at a person that's been through so much and in my mind was truly just trying to provide for her family the best way she knew how. I'm not justifying it. I'm not making excuses, but I know sure, that's what, what her motivation was. Um, and what that did was just carry on to the rest of my family. Um, my brother Ward was a, was a challenging guy to, to get to know. He, he um, definitely went out and did a lot of ch- really, really bad things. He got involved in drugs. Um, when I was a young boy, he took me to what was called a shooting gallery. It's a place where people shot up heroin. Thought was I would look at that and never want to do it myself. And hmm. you know, though that goes that can go both ways. Um, so he, yeah. he he did those kind of things, and he again thinking he was doing something perhaps good. Um, it's what he knew, and it's what he was kind of taught and thought was the right thing to do. My sister Joanne was was wonderful. She she raised us while my mom was away. Um, she always tried to do the right things and and take care of all of us. And, and um, she was the one who kind of kept everybody together. Unfortunately, she got a lot of abuse from my mom. Um, she ended up, uh, when she was pregnant at 16, she ended up having to get married. My mom forced her to get married. And a lot of it was financial. She wanted to make sure, you know, that they were going to have the resources to take care of my nephew, Philip, as well as to take care of the household. Um, and it really made my, it really made my, my sister unhappy and put her in a really mm-hmm. challenging and depressing place. And there was a lot of abuse going on at that time too. Um, uh, physical abuse and emotional abuse that was going on too. So I, I watched all of that. Me and my younger sister, Debbie saw a lot of those kind of things going on and, and just kind of isolated ourselves and stayed away, but it influenced all of us. Now I'm not going to sit here and tell you that I was innocent in all of this. I was part mm-hmm. of this life. I was part of what, what the thought process was. And sometimes I actually thought it was kind of cool um, with my friends and everyone else. I thought the stuff my family was involved in and the things that they were doing was, was good and, and okay. And, you know, I'll speak about this later, but it kind of creates this, this, this thought process of it's what you know. Um, I realized I mm-hmm. didn't know what I didn't know. It's all I knew and it's all they knew. And so um, later in life, it helped me understand why, we're taught not to judge people, but the bottom line is we were in that. And I know, you know, I had police breaking down my door, looking for my brother. I know I had these kind of things going on in our life and I didn't know if they were normal or not. I just knew that they were happening and they were part of our lives. So were you, um, when you were going to school back in that time, 
did did you, did your classmates know that this was going on in your lifestyle, or your teachers know that this was going on? The teachers definitely didn't know. Um, one wow. of the things that I had during that time, yeah, I didn't really talk to anybody about any of this stuff going on. It was, again, mm-hmm. I thought it was kind of normal. I thought it was going on in other families. And when I looked down the streets and, and I saw other families kind of in turmoil too, just literally on the block that I lived in. And, um, but, but the reality is, is no, I didn't really think of any of it as being strange. I thought it was normal. And I just kind of dealt with it. And when I couldn't take it anymore, there was abuse going on. I would go in my room, close my door and watch TV. I kind of wow. learned the process of denying things to, to just get away yeah. and, and avoid, you know, the, the, the challenge and, and somewhat the pain of it all. And, um, but it, I also, I'm sure I carried it out in other ways in the way I treated people. And um, I would obviously get very angry at certain times and, and, and put my frustration places it shouldn't be. Um, for example, one time, this friend of mine, really good friend of mine, called me a white boy. And I got so angry with him. I would, I, because white people would call me nigger, and, and which is mm-hmm. not the right word to use. They would use the N word on me. And then uh, white pe- black people would call me white boy, and it would frustrate me to no end. And because I, I worked so hard just to be black and be accepted, I chased him all the way down the street and just started. My sister had to pull me off of him because I got so angry. Um, and that anger was just part of all of this stuff. And you know, and, and you talk about, you know, where, where all that went, what ended up happening is um, I really did absorb, you know, kind of just start hanging with my friends. I, I just had this really good group of friends that had a lot of the same issues. And, and believe me, they weren't perfect. And we were doing things we shouldn't have been doing, like, you know, trying drugs and doing all this kind of stuff. But as I grew older, I started hanging more with my friends. And you know, I had some really cool people I went to high school with. It was a really great group. There's a guy named John Najeri, and I played football with. If anybody watches CNBC now, and um, he's a big option trader. He's on TV every day on the cable news hmm. network. He's, he's a, a very successful guy. I played football with a couple of guys that are professional, were professional football players for the New Orleans Saints. Um, I played basketball with a young man who, who played uh, basketball overseas for years. Our our basketball team was was a team that um, pretty much started a program at this Park Avenue Methodist Church, which still stands today, which is uh, basically because of our success and the success of our high school basketball team. Um, it, was, it was set up where they, they now have a, a whole high school, a middle school to high school that was born out of all of the things that happened because of this program. Um, they went wow. I went back a few years ago and we had a celebration because of it. So it was really a unique class of people. But my, my best friends was a guy named Tony Price who lived down the street. Um, and my best friend was Dwayne Nelson. And Dwayne and I were friends since the time we were five. And we always used to do everything together. And Dwayne's mom was an alcoholic. Um, he had a mixed family. He, he had stepbrothers and stepsisters. He didn't have a, a full brother. And he and I just kind of just kind of took care of each other for a long time when we mm-hmm. would go through all of these things. We, we didn't commiserate. Sometimes we, we, you know, maybe try some drugs. And the next time we might go play basketball or we'd go throw snowballs or do something, um, break into the gym and play basketball, those kind of things <laughs> we would do. And then when we were in sixth grade, um, um, it was a, Prince Dwayne's half brother 
moved to South Side of Minneapolis, and it's because his mother and father couldn't couldn't take care of him anymore. His father was a musician, and his mother moved on to another relationship. Um, Dwayne's half brother was Prince, um, the artist that everybody knows oh, as wow. the artist is Prince. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he and Dwayne Prince and I became really close friends from pretty much the sixth grade all the way to the twelfth grade. And uh, we were all from broken families. We all kind of were in a situation where we were just trying to look out for each other. And and um, in many ways, we needed to do that for Prince. He was a short guy. He played basketball with us. He played sports. Um, I don't know Prince as, as, the, as the guy who is the big superstar. I know Prince as my, my childhood friend. And um, he, he was, yeah, he was also always there with us. He was always doing things. We would go to his house and, and play wrestle in the basement because wrestling was big there. We would go basketball coach, tell stories in the newspaper about how he used to kick the three of us out of the gym all the time. Cause we'd sneak in at like 12 o'clock at night um, and play basketball. And, you know, we just, just great friends. And um, it was just interesting because I had no idea how talented he was. I just didn't. And mm-hmm. people always ask me that. And especially after he passed, people ask me those questions and, and I just didn't. I just knew him as my friend. And the thing is, is we, the three of us were so close. And, and I went off to college my freshman year. Uh, Dwayne went off to college to play basketball. I went to play football. And Prince signed with Warner Brothers Records. And he ended up uh, letting us know that happened. And, and after that, we kind of didn't have a whole lot in common or, or keep keep track of each other. He would call and um, lead me backstage passes during the Purple Rain tour, during things that were going on, and I would see him a lot. Um, he'd do ha- concerts for handicapped kids over in Santa Monica, and I'd, he'd include, tell me to bring my kids, and we'd go over and see him. Um, things like that we were able to do, but um, our lives kind of started separating, and Dwayne started having some uh, real drug problems. Um, he, he started using um, pretty heavy for a period of time, and and lost his way and Prince um, looked after him and, and got him, uh, sent him to rehabilitation, gave him a job and really started, started w- trying to help him. Um, hmm. Dwayne continued to fall off and, and go back and use drugs. And a lot of it is because he wanted to be in music like Prince and Prince didn't think he was ready, nor did he have, I guess, time to do it. I don't know the story, but it, um, mm-hmm. it kind of just broke Dwayne's heart that he, couldn't get that opportunity and he would go back to drugs and then one time Prince basically said this is it I'm not talking to you anymore we're not going to be um we're I, I've cut you off and that wow. just broke Dwayne yeah it just broke him and what ended up happening with Dwayne is we found out that he, you know he yes he used drugs but he used them to self-medicate um he had uh by bi- he was bipolar and he was schizophrenic and he was he was using all of that just to maintain himself, and and that didn't get found out until after that. And then he started using medi- using medication, but the medication gave him adverse effects. And, sure. and about uh, five five years ago, um, they found Dwayne uh, passed away in his apartment. Um, oh, sorry. Through, through all of this and, and and the drugs, and the thing that I look back on is you know, and I and I will beat myself up over this sometimes is that I just wasn't, you know, how you lose track of people that you were so close to like that just doesn't make sense to me. And, you know, I, yeah. I, 
I struggle with that every day that I lost track of Dwayne and I wasn't there. I got, I went, once I realized how bad he was, I, I, I got in touch with him, but he didn't want that kind of help at that point. He was just, mm-hmm. he was just struggling so bad. He just couldn't take it. And um, I went back to see him and he wouldn't answer his door and let me in. He just, mm. he just wanted to stay to himself. He's and lost. He passed away. Yeah. He was lost. And so, yeah. I went to his funeral. I tried to get Prince to go to his funeral, and it and it didn't happen. And and then um, so we 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 just never really talked. And it was interesting. There was a um, recently, right before Prince passed away a couple of years ago, he he was in a plane, and his plane um, they 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 took his plane down because they said someone was sick on it, and it was it was of course Prince. And um, mm-hmm. that it was a Monday when I heard about this, and I I. I'm reconciled with myself. I'm going to reach out to him. I know he's alone. I know, I, I don't know if he'll pay attention to me. I don't know if he'll listen, but I'm going to try. And then I mm-hmm. decided to put it in my calendar for that Friday to reach out to him. And I waited and, and I, and I said, cause I have a trip to Atlanta this week. So I'm going to go wait and do that. Well, when I was in Atlanta on Thursday is when I saw the news report on the TV that he passed away. Oh. And I was planning on trying, not that I would have been some miracle worker, not that I would have even talking, spoke to him, but no. something in me knew it was, it was time. And again, I felt like, you know, I, I, I missed, missed the opportunity to do something to help. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and, you know, I tell people from that experience, when, when you're prompted to do something like that, you should go, you should do it. You should make sure you do right. it. And that's, that's what I, I learned from that. So. That's a really important lesson. And so you played football. Where did you play football? What college did you end up going to? I ended up going to Lincoln University in Missouri. Um, I um, originally uh, was started at the University of Missouri, but the, the reality is is that um, I, I, you know, I had a bad back. I was injured, and, and Lincoln would give me the opportunity to play quarterback and let me you know, go oh, ahead nice. and play football there. Yeah, so mm-hmm. I did, and, and I, I actually got to play a couple of years before um, the doctors told me I couldn't play anymore. And oh. um, But it was great because, you know, Lincoln was is a historically black college. I, was, I met a lot of wonderful people, uh, you know, black and white. It was pretty amazing because, you know, to be a, a historically black college, a lot of my teammates were white and Hispanic and, and it, you know, it was really wonderful. And then not only that, they were from all over the country. I met people from Texas, from Florida, from Missouri, from California, people I, you know, mm-hmm. just hadn't been exposed to just growing up in Minneapolis. And it was, it was really wonderful. And, and I, you know, when I first got there, I was, I was so undisciplined and, and just didn't feel like I needed to do anything was I, I decided I did didn't want to go to class. I was a football player. I was on scholarship. I was going to do what I wanted. My first semester, I got a 1.6 grade point average. And they said, well, Mm. you're going to go home after the next semester if you don't bring that up. And it scared me to death um, Mm because I did not want to go home. And so um, I I focused on my schoolwork, got eligible. But when I really, when I hurt my back is when I really said, okay, I'm going to focus on school. I'm going to focus on what I'm here for, which is my education. Um, until that happened, which, you know, for a lot of people, you know, me not playing football was like cutting off my right arm. And I, I, you know, I right. played it my whole life. But on the other hand, it, it made me sit down and think, and there was something in me. And, and my coach at the time, Coach Don Hudson, told me, you know, you can help us with the quarterbacks, you can stay around the team, um, but 
focus on your schoolwork, you know, do that. And I did that. Mm-hmm. And, um, it, you know, I ended up bringing up my grade point average, doing, doing really well. And of course, getting my degree. Wonderful. What did you get your year. degree in? Yeah. I don't know. And business, what did administra- you, what did you... business, admi- business okay. administration. Yep. Yes, I did. That's, yep. That has served you well into your adult life. So what, what brought you to California? I mean, I, well, you, you went to college, you got your degree, then you came out here. Yep. I came out here. I wanted to, I, I, you know, when I grew up in Minneapolis, I, I didn't, um, I didn't see a lot of people like me being successful and, and it wasn't good, bad or indifferent. Maybe it was just what I was exposed to the life that I was living. And when I came to California, I thought that I could do, you know, I could, I could come out, come out here and, and do wonderful things. Well, when I came to California though, I wasn't coming alone. Um, when I was a senior in college, I actually um, had two women pregnant at the same time. Um, <laughs> Um, two, oh. two girls that I had dated, yes, at, within six months apart, um, I had them, I, they were both pregnant and both the babies were born in 1980 and 1981. And I graduated in, in June of 1981. And so, um, my oldest daughter who was Mika, um, she, she was with a woman that I was no longer with. My son, Paul Jr. was with a woman that I was with and, um, being immature and, and somewhat ignorant and again being brought up the way I was brought up no excuse no justification but just not knowing what I didn't know all I did is focus mm-hmm. on um, the woman that I wanted to be with and in that child and um, so what ended up happening is my wife-to-be who was Florence ended up moving to California with me and my son Paul Jr. and um, we we moved out here and when we moved out here um, we ended up staying over, you know, at a place over in Fox Hills that my older sister, knowing that I was moving out here, decided to move out here and get. So I, when I hmm. moved out here, I actually moved in with my sister, um, Joanne, who, who was wonderful, but also was starting to get involved in some really dark things at that time. Um, wow. My, you know, her, her son was out here. Her son moved out here in high school and started going to Westchester High, which is dangerous to move to California from Minnesota in high school. He was already involved in drugs. And, you know, when he was in at Westchester, he ended up getting involved with the Crips and joining a gang. And, and it, it almost was something he had to do. He felt he had to do just to, to be accepted at that time. My younger sister, mm-hmm. Debbie moved out here. Um, and we all just kind of came out here. And, and at the time I didn't understand why my um, wife to be Florence didn't, didn't accept everything that was going on in my family. It was, you know, for me, it was kind of normal. It was like, when, once I get back around it, it's like, okay, this is the way it's supposed to be. Um, And she looked at it like it was, no, this isn't the way it's supposed to be. This is the way people are supposed to be and, and to live. And, and when I came to California and eventually had my son, um, I, I just basically continued doing a lot of stuff with my family that I was doing. I went and got a job. I started working. I started selling copier mimeograph machines over in South Central LA in the 80s. I was walking up and down the street, walking into churches, selling copiers. And, and I was just trying to work hard because I knew I had this family that I needed to take care of. And when I moved here, you know, one of the things I thought is, okay, I'm going to get away from all that and I'm going to start the lesson I learned is that you just can't run from things. 
They're always going to be mm-hmm. there. And there was no, you know, there, in the end, there was no reason to run because, you know, when I, when I really understood the purpose and all of it, it all ended up making me stronger and making me who I was. But I went through some challenging times. I, I tried to immerse myself in being, par- being a parent. Um, when I was working, I found myself in a whole different culture than I was coming home to in my family and the things that were going on. It was like I was living in two different worlds. And, and then when my kids started getting older and living here in California, I started getting them involved in sports and athletics and I take them to the Y and, and I take them to places mm-hmm. uh, little league baseball. And it was very multicultural and some were more white than black and none of it really mattered, but it always I always paid attention to it because of the way I grew up in, in the home I always got in, it came back to. And I was always being saying, okay, you're, you're starting to become too white or you're turning square or things like that. I would hear those kind of things over and over and they would resonate in my head as if, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm not, I'm not doing the things that I'm supposed to be doing. So, you know, I lived in a couple of different worlds and it was a just in a big adjustment for me coming here to California to do that especially when my fam- a lot of my family was still was here as well. So That's um, quite a you know when, when you and I were talking about what we you and I were going to talk about specifically on this show and we talked about the fact that there's a lot of that you've just talked about Paul. I'm I'm usually interrupting constantly when people were to, are talking, mm-hmm. but I've never really heard this this part of your story and um I'm really very grateful that you've been as candid as you've been because who you may have been as that young person probably has put you on the path of who you are today. And it's pretty remarkable who you are today. And I would really like to spend some time because that T-shirt is what started it for me when I saw you wearing that shirt. You know, you and I would speak at the Y, but I didn't. I didn't really know anything about you. I mean, I knew you played ball because I knew all the guys that played ball. But I'd like to spend this portion of the show now focusing on Paul the Volunteer. And maybe you could start with um, when you first started volunteering because you had a love for for football. So were you a, were you volunteering as a coach back in the early years? I was. I Well, in, in – and and I don't you know I absolutely want to want to talk about that I want to I want to but couch why I volunteered into some things Please. that happened with my family too so um, Please. you know before I the reason I started volunteering and what happened was um, my family members started getting ill and you know when I talk about all the things that that happened with my family when they were when I was younger I ended up having to get a whole new perspective on things when my family members became ill. Um, my mom developed pancreatic cancer. My sister Joanne ended up with breast cancer. My brother Ward ended up um, with leukemia and blood cancer. Um, my nephew oh Philip had terrible, terrible bed sores. They've all passed away. And during oh my the time that, yeah, and during the time that I was with them, I was I was a caretaker. And the things that I learned during that time are the things that really led me to the, to the volunteer work that I'm doing. Um, with my mom, for example, I, I just, I saw the, 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 the understanding and the perspective of her life and, and in spending time with her while she was sick and, and she understood kind of where, where, where her path had taken her. Um, 
it, it made me, it changed me. It helped me understand, you know, what she went through. Um, Cause there was, for me, sometimes there was some resentment. There was some judgment. There was some anger as a child growing up. And, and when I saw her that way, and, and as I saw her, even as she became older and, and, and a little more humble, she just became a different person to me. And, mm-hmm. and, um, you know, sometimes these things happen so that you can get the right perspective on stuff. And when my sister Joanne became sick, um, that really struck me hard because she was always the caretaker. Now, during the time my mom was ill, my sister Joanne started using drugs. She she was having a really hard time through a lot of things, and she was with a guy that was influencing her, influencing her to do really challenging things. But once he passed away, and after my mom passed away, my sister started finding her way to church. She started finding her way to, to um, what her life's meaning was in her faith. And she kept telling me, Paul, you should come to church with me, do all this stuff. And I'm waving at her like, no, I don't have time for that, Joanne. I'm too busy taking care of everybody, that kind of thing. And then when she got sick, um, you know, she kept telling me this and I just kept saying, "I, I don't have time. And one day we were driving, it was probably in her last month of life when we were driving to the hospital and when we would ride, she would put her hands in her, her head in her hands and she would say to me, um, she wouldn't say a word as we're, we're going all the time. She was so sick and she was just so tired. She wouldn't even move hardly. And I'm on the phone with someone who's asking me for money. And as soon as I hang up the phone, I'm like, Joanne, I'm so tired of everybody asking me for money and I, you know, and asking me for things. I'm just tired of it. And she, you know, she never said anything or responded normally, but she lifted her head up. She looked at me and she caught, she said, you selfish. And I'm not going to say the word, but it starts with an M and an F. Mm-hmm. And she, she cussed at me and she said, don't you realize how blessed you are to be able to help people? And when you need help, when you need support, get on your knees and pray to God. and He'll give you everything you need. My sister passed away wow. about three, three weeks later. Um, but it was a moment in my life that to this point sends chills down my spine because mm-hmm. yep. she just wasn't oh. that person at that time. So, um, mm-hmm. so I'm sorry, but no, I can, uh, I can feel the emotion. I, I can, I, I'm so taken by your, your honesty, um, Paul. And that wasn't easy. That wasn't an easy story to share, but there are people listening that are saying, you're talking my story. Or maybe yeah. you're not talking my story at all, but hearing your story makes me feel your story. And I know that yep. you are a man of faith, and I know that that God's put you on this path to do the things that you do. And I, I'm really glad that you took the time to explain this because it, it really explains why you do all the volunteering that you do. And I I yep. would like you to be able to um, I don't know. Did you want to say a little bit about your your children right now, or do you want to go right over? Well, yeah. You let me. Well, and I think I think you know the, the the one other thing, and just from a perspective standpoint, was when my brother Ward. He he was like I say, he was one of the more challenging people in my life. I really was kind of afraid of him in a lot of ways, and and um, mm-hmm. but as he got older in life, he started working with the mentally ill and homeless population in, in Santa Monica, and I asked him after he got sick, why he did that. And he says, because I've done so many bad things in my life, I needed to start doing something good. 
And one day mm-hmm. when we were at the VA, a guy walked up to him and basically said to him and thanked him and said, you saved my life. And I'm sitting there wow. with my brother who's sick and is dying and, and, and who I've had a challenging relationship with and everything continued to change. And, and I say these things because it gives a perspective of the, 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 the reason why you don't judge people. Lives are, lives are to be lived fully and to the end and, and people can change and people can adjust and, and um, you don't have to hold everybody accountable for everything. And mm-hmm. my children, you know, what ended up happening with my children and, and the wonderful thing that, you know, out of that, that continued to, to influence my life was, you know, I talked about my daughter, Mika. I talked about her earlier and, and that, you know, she wasn't in my life until she was three years old and, and it was my own choice and my own ignorance and, and just not knowing what to do. And my ex-wife and his mother, Carol, decided, mm-hmm. helped me decide to make sure that my daughter could come and visit me every summer um, oh, from the nice. time she was three through high school. And um, those two women didn't have to do that. They didn't have to mm-hmm. do that. But it, it allowed me to have a relationship with my daughter that's, that's really strong today um, even my ex-wife Florence, even after we divorced, she still allowed her to come and stay with them and stay with the other kids as they continue to grow. So again, all of those things, you look at, you look at everything that's defined me has led me to this place where I just started realizing it's time, it's time to give back. I mean, I turned, when I turned 40, I started, you know, after my sister passed away, I started reading the Bible and I started learning about all the things that you can do for people, all the things that you should do for people, understanding that we are just called to help and to serve. Um, and so what I started doing was um, I read an article in a newspaper about a guy named Jimmy Nolan, who was coaching a football team over at Compton Centennial High. And um, I come to find out a friend of mine um, that I went to church with was already helping this coach out. So I reached out to him and said, can I come over and help? And, and, and these kids didn't have, you know, they didn't have showers. They didn't have equipment. Um, they didn't, hmm. they didn't have mentoring or any of that stuff. And, you know, it was a team that was in disarray and Jimmy went over there and just kind of took it on himself. He drove from orange County every single day. Um, we all, we all went over there every single day to spend time with these kids to help them not just become better football players, but to help them hopefully go to college and become better people. And, mm-hmm. you know, we found out there were some basic things that they didn't have. They didn't have things like cleats and, 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 and equipment. The showers weren't working. Um, things like, you know, some of them ran out of food by the 15th of the month. How can you practice football when you, you're eating ramen from the 15th of the month to the end of the month? Um, right. We started bringing them sandwiches for practice. We started making sure there were meals for them before the games. Um, all these things, you know, Jimmy led us to and, and we ended up, you know, just helping out with a lot of these kids. I didn't really coach football. I just kind of worked, worked on the sidelines with the kids to try to help them um, emotionally to be able to be strong enough when the game was tough or after they made a mistake to keep them going. Because mm-hmm. when you grow up in those households, you know, you might think everybody over there is strong and tough. But the reality is, is when those kind of things happen in the real world, you don't have the kind of um, basis, that foundation that, two-parent households have or, or mm-hmm. financially sound households have. 
um, they're, you know, they're, 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 they're somewhat fragile and um, Mm -hmm. we needed to be there for that, for that purpose, if nothing else is to help them through those things. So I started coaching football over at at Compton Centennial and it was an amazing experience. It was interesting because I would, I would, um, at the end of the games at night, we would drive kids home and these kids didn't live in good areas. And I would go Mm -hmm. to, um, Nickerson Gardens, which if anybody's oh, familiar yeah. with Nickerson Gardens, it's not a it's a tough place. And I would go there at eleven, eleven thirty at night. And oh. I would drop kids off and yeah, and, and I didn't really know and, and I'll speak about the next place I, I went after this, which was Miller Camp Juvenile Detention Center and and but when I would drop kids off, of course, you know, I was a little fearful. I didn't know for sure what I was doing. I had family and um, all of those kind of things, but I just knew I, it was it was safer for them to ride in the car home with me than to walk home at that time at night. And so, mm-hmm. um, I saw I saw Father Greg Boyle, who I met at, at Miller Camp in at Homeboy, and I told him about this. And you know, this is a guy who came up in the East LA projects and was around a lot of challenging things. And he looked at me and he said, "Paul, I've learned that safety is not found in the absence of danger, but in the presence of God." And Wait, when say that, that again. Me, that, I, was, that was important. I want you to repeat that one they, more time. He said, safety is not found in the absence of danger, but in the presence of God. Okay. So, um, and, and it was meaningful for me because, you know, as I was mm-hmm. going through my faith journey and my understanding of everything, it really, you know, kind of helped me understand that it's okay to immerse yourself in faith and not be fearful. Fear is the opponent mm-hmm. of faith. So let's go out and start doing more things. So I started going to a juvenile detention center called Miller Camp. I'd go there every Saturday. And I started meeting these young men that were, that were literally in prison from ages 14 to 18. But the difference is they had a chance. They had a chance if they could change their lives to do something different. They weren't locked up in the, in the real jails. They were, they were given an opportunity to get their education if they had the right people in their lives. And the stories I would hear at this place about the families. I mean, one kid that I ended up, I still mentor to this day and I'm still in contact with him has 13 brothers and sisters and his mom had kids by 13 different men. He's been in foster care his whole life. He, He cried to me one day saying my life would be different if I had a mom and dad. So when I go back to my, my life and my childhood, you know, everybody, in those situations don't have a, just doesn't have a level playing field. They just don't. And that doesn't mean we can't overcome it, but we need people in our life that are going to help us overcome it. And that was my purpose. And, you know, going to Miller camp ended up becoming a really a weekly ritual because every week when I would leave on Saturday, the guys that I would talk to would say, are you going to be here next Saturday? And I, Mm. and I had to, and wanted to say yes, because the reality is, is that they were looking forward to that. Their families weren't coming yeah. to visit them very much. They were there alone, and they were teenagers. They were kids. And so, um, so you, again, you start looking at, 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 at lives like that that are changing. And then while I was at, at Miller Camp, I, you know, and it, it, this is all the process. Once you start immersing yourself in stuff, you start finding your way from one place to the next. Once a month, Father Greg Boyle would come and hand out his cards. When you get out, come to Homeboy. When you get out, come to Homeboy. Well, Homeboy is the largest gang intervention program in the United States. They have changed the lives of thousands of men and women. And basically all they do is give you a job. 
If you come down mm-hmm. there and you haven't been drinking, you have, you're, you're clean from drugs, they will give you a job and you'll get in their 18 month program and you become immersed in a, in a, in a culture that's different than anyone that you've ever had. Doesn't mean your life's going to be perfect and everything's going to shift, but you're going to have a job. And his whole point was, you know, I'm going to have a crip and a blood working right next to each other. And it's not going to matter that no mm-hmm. kids. He says, I grew up in West LA. I grew up in West LA. I never got in a bus and said, I'm going to East LA to join a gang. These kids joined the gang because of where they grew up and what they were like. It's interesting. When we were at Compton Centennial, Nike gave Jimmy a bunch of shoes and donated all the shoes. Um, they were all blue shoes. Well, those kids refused to wear them because they were, oh, a man. they were in a crypt area. So they would not re- wear those shoes. That's how those things are ingrained in people. And, and people that aren't exposed to that or immersed in it, it's hard to understand. It makes it challenging. Don't even know. But, sure. But wouldn't even know. Wouldn't even know. And it's just like when I, when I go back and I talk about my family and my upbringing and the things mm-hmm. that I saw, I, you know, I, didn't, I didn't know any different. My brother didn't know any different. Mm-hmm. My nephew didn't know any different. It's what they knew. And that's why mm-hmm. I go out and talk to folks like this, and I can, I can do it without judgment. Um, Mother Teresa ministry, you know, when Miller Camp closed and I decided, okay, I, you know, I've got my Saturday mornings open. What I started doing is going downtown and serving food to the homeless every Saturday. This is a ministry that's been going on for years, and it's interesting. The guy I, I work with, a guy named Herman Deloria, he actually has been doing it for 20 years. He's been doing this route for 20 years. And wow. you can imagine the relationships you build when you go downtown mm-hmm. every Saturday in the same areas and bring food to people. Um, you know, and, and this ministry for Mother Teresa, it, 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 it's amazing because it's all about not judging. I mean, her quote, when you look at her ministry, and then you, when you think about this, if we all treated each other, this way we would be great but she says our job is not to judge our job is not to figure out if someone deserves something our job is to lift the fallen to restore the broken and to heal the hurting so when people Mm -hmm. go downtown and they see a homeless population they think they must have did something wrong they had to that's how we can justify it for ourselves that's how we can justify Mm -hmm. anybody who's broken that they did something wrong Mm -hmm. their family you know they're they're they, they hurt their family or they, they, they didn't hold on a job or they're lazy or all those kind of things. You know, the point is, is you just don't care. You shouldn't care. If you, someone's broken, let's, let's help them. If someone's hurting, right. let's help them stop hurting. That's the concept when you do things like that. And, and to be honest, that's what my faith has, has guided me to. And, mm-hmm. you know, when you see people like that going through that process, it leads you from one place to the next. And, and, and again, through Homeboys, I started volunteering down there, and I met a young man who was in prison for 16 years. And he started mm-hmm. the Homeboy program, and, and I started mentoring him. And, and he eventually became a young man that was, uh, was speaking with Father Greg as they would tour. Today, he's now working for a cable company. I mean, this is a this is a guy who less than a year ago was in prison for almost 16 years and now has a full-time job, a family, and he's looking mm-hmm. forward to his life every day. So that these must are the fill kind your of things heart that with such joy. Oh, it does. Oh, it does. And, and and you know the reality is is 
what I've learned is you can't help everybody, but you can always try. You know, God right. has asked us to try. There's nothing wrong with trying. And, and, and just because it doesn't work out doesn't mean you stop, stop doing it. Right. One of the young men that, one of the young men that I, I worked with at Miller camp and, and I'm, I'm still working with the mentoring. He, we got him into school. His mom came back in his life. Like I said, he had 13, 13 brothers and sisters from 13 different men. And wow. he ended up going back to prison, just getting out about six months ago. He sent me a text saying, you know, I need you in my life. I'm, I got a job. I got a car. I'm starting to do the right things. I took him down to Homeboy so he could get involved there. The next day, his brother came over and stabbed him in the chest um, over some clothes. The young man almost died. I went to go visit him in the hospital. And Mm -hmm. the thing is that's so amazing is he he texted me the other day and said, God has given me a second chance. Um, I know I'm here for a reason, and he's back to work already. He continues to keep trying. And it's all because he he knows that people believe in him. He knows he's here for a purpose. That's and a great that's, story, that's, Paul. That's the purpose of all of this. And you never know how he's going to work out, but you just keep doing those kind of things. And and we're going to get involved in a group uh, uh, starting in January. This, it's called Healing Hearts and Restoring Hope. We're going to we're going mm-hmm. to be doing things for victims of homicide in, in the Men's Central Jail downtown, um, helping a victim of homicide understand all the collateral damage of what they've done, so they can truly mm-hmm. rehabilitate themselves instead of coming back and, and just keeping me going. And, um, you know, the last thing I started doing is, is working and going to a mission trip in Guatemala once a year with some folks at through my church. And it's a wonderful ministry. We, we help build homes. We, we continue trying to just go there and make a difference in the time that we're there. But, you know, it, you know, you don't go places like that to make, you know, just to make a difference. Um, what it really does is it makes a difference in us. And that's what I, I find every time I come back from Guatemala is it, it gives me a perspective that all of the stuff that we get so worried about and wrapped up on just isn't that important. If there's people that are hurting, we need to pay attention to them. And those people have so much love in their eyes and so much love in their heart, and they don't have much at all. I mean, these are folks living in dirt floors and tin roofs and mm-hmm. um it's amazing when you see the resilience and the love of so many of those folks. So, you know, my message is get wow. involved. My way of my way of getting involved has been because of all of the challenges that I've had in my life. Um, my reason mm-hmm. for doing it is because of that. And you know, I think it's just important to carry that out as we go through each and every day. And um, my purpose came from my sister. It came from my brother. Um, as challenging as my life was, all of those things, my nephew, Philip, they're not here anymore, but their, their, their struggle, their challenges, and their life is the reason I'm here doing what I'm doing right now, and I'm thankful for it, and I'm, I'm a better person because of it. Well, for those listening, um, it's very simple to find um, about more about these specific organizations homeboys industry is just homeboys home boy is it boys or boy homeboy industry it's home is it with an s homeboys industry no s homeboy no s no s dot org yep. okay homeboy yep. industries dot org and then yep. the one um 
the crosscatholic.org industry. What which which nonprofit is that? That's 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 for the trips to Guatemala. They manage um, okay. mission trips so that if you want to go someplace, if you want to take your family or if you want to take a group of people to go on a mission trip, they can help organize that trip for you. Terrific. I'll make sure that um that these are listed on the um the follow-up post so that people, if they want to learn more about going to Guatemala and volunteering or if they want to learn about Homeboy Industries, um, they certainly can. I'd like to spend, I know that um, not only do you volunteer and are you an extremely powerful volunteer, but you you have a professional life too that I find this very mm-hmm. interesting. You're the president of your company. Um, I thought yeah. you could just talk a little bit about what you do in your professional world. Sure. Um, and, 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 you know, one thing is that all of this is wrapped together. It's, it's, it's I why I so. do this and yes. who I am. It's all wrapped together. And, and, you know, mm-hmm. I ended up starting a company, Mitchell sales advisors um, almost a year ago. And what I, what I, what I did with the company is, you know, I, I'd been a sales leader for 30 years. I'd been a, a you know, a vice president or executive vice president of sales and, in my last company, I was, I was blessed with the opportunity to work with some wonderful people. But even prior to that, I met a guy named Bill Boyd. Bill Boyd has been um, the closest thing to a father I've ever had. And he, you know, mm-hmm. in, in, in my business career, when I was in my 30s, I was at a company called Muzak. He called me up and said, I want you to be the vice president of national sales. And I said, why, really, me? And he said, yeah, you. And, and this man believed in me um, more so than sometimes I believed in myself. And I had a lot of doubts because of all the things in my life, but, you know, Bill embraced that. And what he taught me to do is embrace that in other people. And what that meant is you go out and you, you treat people like you want to be treated. But when people are working with you and for you, you, you go to this concept called servant leadership. You go to this concept of saying, listen, I want everybody around me to be better. I want them to go home and take care of their families. I want them to be able to do the best that they can in their jobs. And let's lay a foundation. Let's make sure all the foundation is set so everybody can do the right work. That means setting up the processes, um, introducing the right plans, teaching people the right story, all of the things that you need to do to lay the foundation so you can not only do it yourself, but you can teach other people to do it. Bill taught me that, and that's basically what my company has been about is going out and helping small to mid-sized businesses, you know, increase their their sales and increase all of those functions and the foundation of their business so they can create the right culture and the right right business so that they can continue continue to scale their sales department and scale their teams. And, you know, Bill taught me that while we were working with the really wonderful company called Agility Recovery. It was a wonderful business. And um, Bill is a man who helped all of us grow that business to a point where a couple of years ago we sold it. Two days after mm-hmm. we sold the company and everything was finalized, Bill told us he had brain cancer. Six months oh later, my gosh. he passed away. His son, oh another gosh. wonderful man, Bob Boyd, was our CEO, and he went and took care of his father. Um, Bill, at Bill's funeral, you know, I thought I was special in Bill's life. I saw so many people that came up and stood there and thought they were just as special to Bill as I did. That's what Bill taught me, is that everybody we meet in business, in life, in everything we do, should 
feel that they're special around us. They should feel that they have meaning, whether it's a homeless person on the street or a new salesperson you're teaching or someone who is a tenured business person. doesn't matter. They should all feel as if they're the most important person there. And if they do that in business and in life, they're going to do great because I want people that are going to, going to do not only great in business but to go home and do the same things with their families. I'm, one of the things Bill did when we were at Agility, and, and Bob helped with that as well, Bob guided this, and, and, and is to continue hiring people that were on the margins. Um, Bill's other son, Andy, ran our office in Denver, and he went out and he hired people that actually uh, most companies would never have hired. He hired people that were former felons, had had backgrounds of, of, of drinking and drugs and doing things like that. And they hired these folks basically and put faith in them. Four of these people right now are leaders at other companies. Their lives have changed. Mm-hmm. And it's because of the kind of person Bill was and the way he was in everyone's life. He didn't judge people. He taught me not to judge. And in business, it's so easy to judge. It's so easy mm-hmm. to be judged. And we don't have to be. We, we, we can carry that same servanthood that I do at Homeboy into our business as long as we lay the right foundation for people to be successful and we pay attention to them. So um, my business has grown to that point because it's, it's, it's focused on that. And um, I enjoy working with companies that want to build that kind of culture. And I, can, I know I can help them do that if given the opportunities. Boy, when you hear the slogan, pay it forward, I mean, you're like the poster person for that. I, it's, it's so clear that Bill had such an, Im- an immeasurable part in your professional life, and you learned so much from him, and you, you are the billboard to that next person because you have that concept. Yeah. It isn't something that you have to work on. It's the way you live your life. It it is who you are. If I can be anything close to what, yeah, if I can be anything close to one person the way Bill was to me, then, yeah, I think my life would have meaning. So I I appreciate that, and that's you know for me that's the the best thing someone can say about about me um, when it comes to that. So I I appreciate that. You know, Paul, it's funny. You know, I would say to the gals that guys that were working at the front desk because um, I, I supervise them. I, I said, you never know who's walking into this Y. They're in gym shorts and they're carrying a bag, and, you know, you don't know anything about them unless you get to know them. And I still stay in touch with a lot of my YMCA friends, and I think that they are going to be so filled with joy learning this I think about Jenny Walker. That's just the name that just kind of comes mm-hmm. to my mind off the top, you know, because I know she's sure. a good friend of your son's. Um, yeah. Maybe there's a part of the story that they just didn't know about you, and it just, it's just so complete, and it's so beautiful, and it's so inspiring. And I feel like my shows all this month, all of my shows in November all have this this part of it. I you were talking about people that you know are incarcerated. Next week's show, I'm going to have a woman by the name of Jeanette Thomas on my show, and she started a nonprofit in Orange County called Cell Dogs. Cell meaning incarcerated, and she mm. rescues dogs from shelters 
They never return. They go to the jails. The inmates learn how to train them properly. They, they develop this love-care relationship that maybe many people in, in, in jail don't have in their lives, but this animal now loves them. And then 80% of those dogs get adopted out, and 20% of those dogs actually go as service dogs. And one particularly named Ruby landed with a Marine, a Marine veteran, and he Ooh. has PTSD, and his oh, wow. life story is very challenging. And they're going to be on my show next week, which is Veterans Day. And yes. we're going to be talking about, you know, there are just wonderful people doing wonderful things. And oftentimes these ex- experiences come from just like what you're saying, something in your childhood. I grew up in an entire, the only thing I can relate to what you said is my father was born and raised in Duluth. Other than that, mm-hmm. <laughs> I didn't grow up yeah. in a household that can can begin to compare to what you've grown up with and what you've experienced and what you've seen. But I can tell you that the compassion and the love that I have from hearing your story and your genuineness, it's just, it's a beautiful thing, Paul. And I just want to thank you, well, thank you. so much for being my guest. My pleasure. Just, Thank you for having me. And I'm honored uh, and humbled to be able to share this, and I, I you know, I, I, I hope it helps, and I appreciate the opportunity to share. Well, you know, I can see where, honestly, you could be a keynote speaker in so many organizations. You're eloquent. Yeah. You're, um, you're truthful, and it's it's inspiring to to hear your story. And for those of you that are listening that think, man, I have a great story of my own, you can really easily find me. My my email is so simple. It's Marsha at borntotalkradioshow.com. I would love to hear from you. Um, subscribe to my blog and my website so you can get noticed every week. If you love podcasts, which seems to be so very popular today, it's very easy to subscribe to the Born to Talk radio show on your favorite platform, whether it's in iTunes or it's in Google Play. And then you can just listen whenever it's convenient for yourself. Maybe you're on a treadmill. Maybe you're walking your dog. Maybe you're in Los Angeles and you're sitting in, in hours of traffic. However, I'd like, to hope, I'd like you to join me each week because each of my shows bring its own unique specialty. And I, I, I'm just... I'm very, very touched by by your show and your story and your testimony. And, you know, I look forward to seeing you. Do you still go to the Y? Paul, do you, do you find not, not as much as I used up? to. I, yeah, not as much as I used to. I used, I used to go there and play basketball. So I kind of right. do other exercise. But I, I'm yeah. gotten a little too old to play basketball, so I don't go there as much well, as I used hey. to. So. Maybe, I, yeah. maybe we should meet on a treadmill someday, right? We should challenge each other. Sounds good. But, That sounds great. So thank you so much. Have a wonderful day, everybody. Enjoy. If you don't feel inspired to be and do something kind, by all means, just smile at the next person you see. You don't know what their struggle might be and just wish them a pleasant day. We shouldn't have strangers in our lives. That's just sort of the motto that I live by. So I'm going to say goodbye for now. 
I hope you'll all join me next week when we have Jeanette, when I have Jeanette and um, Gabriel on my show, and I look forward to that. Have a wonderful week, everybody. Try and adjust to this time change. I know it's going to be dark before we know it. See you next time, everyone. All right. Thank you. Thank you, Paul.